our approach to bomb disposal which come from Northern Ireland. One of our kind of big rules is that when you go out to the bomb, you go on your own, call it a one-man risk. But because of the way that we were operating in Helmand particularly, we actually, my bleep, had to go much further down the road than than he had been trained to. And I, you, know, you could be on the job for two or three hours. It's hot. It's dangerous. There's there's firefights happening in the cordon. And you had to go up and down the road several times. But it can take a toll on you. And just physically or emotionally, or, you know, intellectually. Um, and most my bleep, he was always ready to go down the road when I was ready to go down the road. And sometimes I had to... I felt you know, I was a young captain at the time. He was a lance corporal, so I was the boss, and I had responsibility to to get the task done. And I couldn't do it without him, and he needed to come with me. And I was always really grateful that he was willing to to come down the road with me yeah. when I needed to. Hello, and welcome to Battling with Business with me, Gareth Tennant. For those of you that are new to this podcast. We compare and contrast business and military when it comes to things like teams and teamwork, leaders and leadership, organisations, culture, decision-making and strategy. Normally, it's myself and Chris, but this week we have a slightly different format, so I'm on my own, but we have a very special guest with us. We have Lieutenant Colonel Joe Brown from the Royal Logistics Corps. I think we're going to try and record two sessions with you, Joe. Firstly, we're going to look at Joe's career and the journey that he's been on uh, and then I think we're going to try and do a second session where we focus slightly more on looking at mentoring and coaching and the role of leaders in developing the rest of the team. Colonel Joe has been in the army for 24 years. He specialised in high threat IED disposal and so that is bomb disposal to you and me. He recently competed a tour of duty as the commander of an army logistics regiment and was instrumental in the redeployment of British forces from Afghanistan, whilst also concurrently supporting multinational operations elsewhere. His command was during the height of the COVID lockdowns, and so I suspect there's some nuances around command and leadership that we can explore as we get into this episode. And as if that wasn't enough, he's become something as a specialist in personnel management. And by that, I don't just mean your sort of normal HR, rather uh, focusing on skills, talent management, and particularly in the role of leaders in mentoring and developing other members of the team. He's currently studying for a master's in defence leadership with Cranfield University and was also one of the architects for Programme Castle, which Joe will tell us a little bit more about later on. But as far as I understand, it was the Army's future career structure realignment. Yeah, I think you can call it that. He is also a mentor in the Startup Leadership Programme, which is nothing to do with defence, but he's about mentoring the CEOs of startups uh, and helping them develop into better leaders and managers. And I'm sure we'll get into that a little bit too later on. So in this first session, Joe, I'd love to explore your journey, both in the army and some of your extracurricular sort of activities. And then I said in the second session, um, I'd like to get into more of a, a discussion around the role of uh, leaders in mentoring uh, and developing other members of their team. So we did an episode a couple of weeks back, which I believe you've listened to, with Brigadier John Creswell, where we looked at fear, adaptation uh, and ambiguity. I did uh, two close combat tours uh, in the Royal Marines and IDs are really bloody scary. So 
how do you manage that in such a small team where your job is about going to where those ideas are and dealing with those things? Um, and I suppose more uh, interesting to me would be how do you make the team work when there's this primary role of the ATO, so the ammunition technical officer, um, who is the person that goes forward and, and de- diffuses or deactivates the, the device? How do you make it about a team? How do you how do you lead and manage that? Well, well, Gareth, I think thank you, know, thanks for having me, in, and thanks for those questions. I think the uh, my, you know my experience of EOD or bomb disposal was primarily I did I did about a year in the UK mainland uh, in two thousand and seven into two thousand eight where we were supporting UK police and that was dealing with non terrorists you know grenades found in grandma's attic that type of thing yeah did that for about a year and then did a, another course which qualified me to go to Afghanistan and so my experience is based on four months in Afghanistan. Uh, and then had about six weeks off, and they did another four months in Iraq. So that that, that I'll, I'll kind of talk from that experience. But a lot of our the army's approach to to this is all is all steeped in experience from Northern Ireland, and and therefore one of my big challenges was actually we were trained to deal with the threat that was in Northern Ireland with Northern Ireland type kit. And then one of my biggest challenges actually as a leader was amending my approach and and the way the team operated to operate in in Afghanistan. So. So that, that that's the sort of basis of my of, of my experience. I think uh, how did I find how did I motivate the team to to do their to do their job? Well, I was really lucky. I think you know the team that I led in 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 Helmand had there's four of us. Uh, there's me. I, I was responsible for going down the road and 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 making the bomb safe. I had another two operator and assistant. Now he under normal circumstances would drive a robot. Um, which we like to do a lot of as much as possible we can in bomb disposal by robot, but we didn't. We very rarely used a robot in in, in Afghanistan. So actually, what he did was, uh, and that was because of the met- our method of deployment. So we, we we flew everywhere in helicopter. The robots that we had couldn't really go in helicopters. So a lot of the stuff we had to do, rather than doing it with the robot, we were doing what we called semi manually, which meant effectively me walking down the road, doing something to the device, retiring to a safe distance, and then taking some action remotely so blowing something up or cutting something remotely uh and then going back down the road and confirming that that worked and then and then doing the next stage so the number two operator would help me prepare prepare the explosives and, and that sort of thing i also had a third member of the team who we call the bleep yeah he managed some relatively sensitive equipment that were that was that we might sort of call radio jammers that would make the area safe for me to operate and the fourth member of the team was effectively an infantry escort uh, but essentially helped us carry some of the kit because, as you all know, uh, soldiers and marines in, in Afghanistan carry quite a lot of kit. Our kit was quite, our, our EOD kit, bomb disposal kit was quite heavy. Uh, so we needed four of us. Uh, and there was a wider team as well, a search team that came from the Royal Engineers, and they did absolutely, abs- absolutely essential work. Now, technically, it was a, a separate team. They kind of joined my team for each task. Uh, they were essential to help us um, be as safe as we could before I made the approach on, on the device. So, yeah. so that's the team. How do I motivate them? Well, I think everybody that was involved in that, in each of their individual role, everybody was very pleased and proud to have qualified to, to do it. So there was a there was a feeling of yeah, elitism, you might say, you know, people were proud to be part of that team. So I didn't find motivating them uh, very hard. I think there was a couple of things that were interesting dynamics. So I joined the team in Afghanistan. I, there was one or two of them I kind of happened to know from the wider arm beforehand, but not very well. We haven't trained together. 
we'd all done the same courses, but at different times we came together on, on the ground. I think that was way less than optimum, actually. I mean, we got through it, but it would have been better if we'd have trained together and then I would have known those those people better. Yeah. I think one of the really interesting dynamics I was found was that I said that our approach to bomb disposal would come from Northern Ireland. And I mentioned the bleep, the guy who ran the, the jammers for me. Well, w- one of our kind of big rules is that when you go up to the bomb, you go on your own, call it a one-man risk. But because of the way that we were operating in Helmand particularly, we actually, my bleep had to go much further down the road than than he had been trained to. And I would much prefer him to be further away. So so it wasn't quite a two-man risk, but he was he was much further down the road than me. And so, and sometimes when you're on a job, you know, you could be on a job for two or three hours, and it's hot, it's dangerous, there's there's firefights happening in the cordon and you have to go up and down the road several times. And, you know, every time you go down the road, ideally you're making that particular bomb safer. So it's less risk every time, but it can take a toll on you and just physically or emotionally, or, you know, intellectually. Um, and most my bleep, you know, uh, he was always ready to go down the road when I was ready to go down the road. And sometimes I had to, I felt, you know, I was a young captain at the time. He was a Lance Corporal. So, you know, both relatively junior, you know, me as junior officer, relatively junior NCO, but, you know, I was the boss and I had responsibility to to get the task done and I couldn't do it without him and he needed to come with me. And I was always really grateful that he was willing to, to come down the road with me yeah. when I needed to. Uh, and I still speak to him occasionally now, actually, uh, just, uh, you know, we're, we're sort of parts of, of, of kind of diverted, but we, we still touch base occasionally on WhatsApp or whatever. Uh, and he said to me a few years ago that, he, he, th- he thought that I was the bravest operator he'd ever worked with. And I didn't know whether that was a compliment or not, because I thought that maybe he thought that I might have been uh, a bit over brave in, in some of the things that we did. But I was always grateful that he came that he came with me. Yeah, that, that's really interesting. And I think there's something further to explore there, because uh, I don't think we were ever on the same uh, combat tours. I was on I don't Herrick think so. 9 and, and 14. Um, but... My role as a uh, as a close combat troop commander was always about managing you know, the team to collectively achieve you know, the task. Um, and of course, there's lots of built-in uncertainties and, and, and risk. But it always felt to me like there was a balance of motivating the team to, to get out and do the job, making sure that you know, they've had enough sleep, making sure that they're... you know well fed they've got all their equipment and all that all that kind of husbandry type stuff that you have to do but then when it actually came to delivering effect of doing the job so when you're in a firefight or or when things are going on on the ground it felt like i was actually restraining mm. and stopping stopping the the marines going too far forward or you know advancing and, and so far that they were splitting up the call sign or, or whatever so it's more of a coordinating function so the, the leadership challenge for me was always about trying to keep lots of people who want to go off and do stuff together to act cohesively, um, which feels quite different from your role where you're effectively trying to keep a team together so that they can support you to deliver that final effect, albeit you're going to drag along your lunch corporal to provide that jamming effect. Yeah, I think... Yeah, I mean, I do. I'd recognise the difference between sort of larger, like platoon formations or troop formations, companies, and the the, the role of leaders, particularly officers, in kind of co- coordinating and keeping people against the plan. I think there, uh, my team. In, I asked myself, did, did I ever have to restrain them? 
I think perhaps I felt, you know, uh, both a sort of, whether you call it professional, paternalistic, or just normal compassion, I felt uh, a responsibility to make sure I could keep them safe. Yeah. And those, and some of the lads were, you know, quite young lads, and it was their first time on the ground. And certainly, even the bleep, you know, they're specially trained for it, but actually the parts of the army they joined weren't necessarily, they probably didn't expect themselves to be, you know, right in the thick of it in, yeah. in the Hellman Desert or, or the Green Zone, um, you know, um, sometimes with bayonets fixed, that they weren't necessarily, that's not what they signed up for. Yeah. Um, so I felt, uh, you know, a responsibility to make sure that I kept them straight. Sounds a really weird thing, but when I got into, um, when I got into theatre, my boss in the EOD group said, oh, by the way, you're going to bounce around all around helmet. You're going to, you, you're hardly ever going to be a musket. And because of that, our teams, we don't we don't have to shave when, when we go forward out of Bastion. And um and, the, and he said, and the guys like it because you know they kind of feel a bit alley. And I and I thought about it. Um I was quite young and you know, I'm normally sort of Victorian dad, but I thought about it, I thought, hang on a minute, like we we take guys are taking their iPads with them, or iPods, sorry, not iPads, iPods with them. So it's not like we haven't got space for our shaving kit. And I, I thought about it, I thought, well, when we go forward, we're actually, when we go and support the battle groups, actually we're in, we're usually going to their echelons, their, yeah. their sort of safe areas where we're landing usually, and then we go forward. So I wasn't sure that I wanted my team to turn up unshaven because the battle groups w- were shaving. Yeah. And it sounds like a really, a really basic thing, but I said to my team, look, sorry, in, in, in our team, we are shaving because it, it it's not like you can't carry that kit. And, and I don't want us to feel special. And, and the people that we're supporting, we're going to ask them to do stuff that's going to, then we're going to ask them to amend their tactics. And the closer we look to them to like, reg, like regular soldiers, the more the eat. And that's going to be me that's delivering that message. Yeah. So if you're clean shaven and, and you look neater, then we're going to win over the Sergeant Major earlier on when I'm, when I'm asking them to change the company tactics to keep them safer from, from a particular bomb threat. So that was something perhaps, the closest connection I would have to kind of coordinate and controlling the, the guys, make, make sure they kept safe. Yeah. Uh, uh, make sure they did their, their skills and drills, little things, you know, like making sure that when they loaded their weapons made ready, when they left the um, forward operating base, we did that in a controlled direction into, into we have these sort of big sun pit things to, to, to aim into. Cause what I didn't want to do was have one of my friend, one of my people accidentally shoot one of my other people when they were making their weapons safe because mm. people are tired at the end of the day. So, those types of things, the more traditional leader controller perspectives, they came into play. Yeah, I think in the same way that when I led a troop in Iraq not doing bomb disposal, we did those same basic things. Yeah. It, it's really interesting that when talking to you, you're talking about the really basic things. Yeah. You know, getting getting the blades to shave so that they feel the part and look the part when interacting with with other external audiences. Because when I think about EOD teams, I do think about those you know, teams that flew in off the helicopters to come and effectively come and save the day. Mm-hmm. Um, and there's a really interesting dynamic that um, I'm, I'm sure you're familiar with, that whenever we came across a device, I would, you know, I had I had what I thought was a, you know, a very, very good troop of, very brave, very capable Marines who it would actively go looking for a firefight. We went out on the ground trying to find the enemy, trying to close them down. But the idea of a bomb in the ground petrified us. Um, and there's, it was interesting because the EOD teams would come in and they would be the specialists mm-hmm. and they would be the people that would be able to come and 
you know, disarm that device, make it safe, allow us to get on with our job. Uh, and there was this feeling of, um, you know, that you were special, that you were coming in to, to sort of save the day. But then, interestingly, I, I had a similar, I had the same EOD team on, on several uh, several missions, and I got to know the, the ATO quite well, to the, the commander of the team. And it was interesting that when there were firefights, they were deeply uncomfortable because that was out of their comfort zone. Mm -hmm. That was what we were comfortable with, but they were perfectly, you know, happy to to do things with bombs and IEDs that we absolutely weren't out of our comfort zone. But actually the the little thing about leading a a team, organizing a team feel very, very similar. It was about making sure that the basics are done well, that Mm -hmm. you're, recognizing the importance and explaining that importance to the team of those basic things, the shaving every day or the, you know, making sure that people have got full water bottles or or whatever it was. The really basic things are what I think are the things that make a good team work. And then they, that then means that you can all collectively concentrate on those more difficult, challenging and complex things. Yeah, I think so. I think there's, um, I definitely recognize that dynamic of, you know, when we were there in our comfort zone, we had a nice cordon around us. We were there to deal with the device, um, you know, save the day with your, with your inverted uh, comms here, here, above, uh, above, uh, above your head. But actually, yeah, if if it became a, a, a bit more rowdy on the cordon and we had to start to, I remember after one job in Sangin, extracting from a job, job in Sangin, when, when we were on the job in Sangin, in the, in the comp, we were raided a compound that was, the company commander said to me, Joe, what do you want? When that was, and we'll do it. And then when that was finished and we had to extract and actually it became, uh, it was physically very, very exerting actually. Then that was very much, okay, Ato, like keep up, <laughs> don't get in the way. We're moving, we're firing. You, you you just move within this bubble. So there's definitely a topsy-turvy element of, you know, depending on what the tactical situation is, who who is in the lead. But what I did, with, did think I'd touch on is, um, you know, talking about basics. So in, you know, the military people got an idea about, you know, kind of formal hierarchies and, you know, usually, um, in fact, not usually, always, whenever I was in other regimental duty positions as a, as a logistician, as a platoon, as a troop commander, uh, commander of the squadron in Germany, and then when I commanded the unit, I would never myself or never accept for my officers, those officers letting them, their soldiers call them, anything other than sir or mom or by their rank. And again, it's a basic thing because it, it allows, it allows the officer to kind of, uh, it gives us a framework by which we can maintain leadership and you might say discipline as well. In the EOD teams that everybody is taught from the get go on the course, that whether the number one operator, the person who walks down the road to the bomb, whether they be a Sergeant, staff Sergeant, warrant officer, captain or maybe major and, and it could be any of those ranks really they're there to be called boss and one of the reasons and not sir or ma'am or, or by the by the rank yeah and the re- one of the reasons for that is because the the, the you know it's, it's from learning from northern ireland you know 40 years uh, of, of history there was that we've got to get to the situation where in these small teams if the most junior person team lance corporal sees the opera the number one operator or anybody else doing something that's going to be safely critical they don't want to have to in that split second overcome a reticence to challenge because of the rank yeah they need to be able to speak up straight away and say stop doing that's dangerous or, or why are you doing it 
And so, so this was kind of this like a big, a big difference for me in, in leadership in the big army versus leading in the EOD teams is that in big army, I, I think boss culture is bad. Yeah. In EOD, it worked really well. And, and I, I always said to my, my, my number two operator who, you know, his trade is an ammunition technician. He aspired to be a number one operator, fast forward five or six years, he would be. And to my bleep, who actually also transferred and became an EOD operator later on, I felt that I had to teach them. They were going to learn on courses, but they were going to learn from watching me. And and the bleep was, was quite very experienced actually before he came to work, join my team. So I said to all of them, listen, if you're if I'm doing something that, that you don't understand or you think that is right, then I want you to tell me. I want you to ask, like, boss, why are you doing that? Because it might be that I'm knackered. It might be that I'm hungry, thirsty, scared, just got tunnel vision. I've used a, um, you know, I've used a heuristic, which is, which is going to, which could, which would cost, cost usually me, because I'm the one that's sort of poking the bomb, could cost me my life or it could cost someone else their yeah. lives because of a mistake that I made. So they needed to be able to speak up and, to, and call me out. So actually, I'd like to think they would do that anyway, whatever they call me, but just having that, giving them that sort of freedom of, okay, in this organization, it's fine to call in boss yeah. and actually, I'm sure that in, in some teams it actually probably would have been the first name. We stuck with boss, but it, yeah. it, it, it to me it worked. Well, I had a conversation a couple of weeks back with Chris where we talked about close quarters battle tactics um, of, of counter piracy, uh, and I made exactly that point. And I talked about when I was doing small team piracy, it was all first name terms because we were a team of eight plus a couple of snipers who had to rely on each other, uh, and you know from your experience, you'll know that when you're going through CQB, anybody can be at the front of that stack at any time and they call the shots because they're the person that can see the the clearest uh, you know, view of the threat and also are the person that's most in the firing line. And I think it, it, it's a really interesting parallel because I went through the same thing. You know, as a troop commander of 30-odd Marines, you know, very aware of having to maintain that authority even though i was 21 and i had you know a sergeant in my troop who was you know in his 40s and had 15 20 years more experience than me um i had marines lance corporals corporals who'd got phds or master's degrees um so you know, there was no clear educational sort of authority it was all down to the job that i held as a street rather and therefore yeah, things like maintaining you know, the rank uh, and the acknowledgement of the rank is, is really important. Although at the time, it, it can feel like you're being a bit supercilious. So I think I think there's a thing here about um, there's what like you mentioned the masters that I was studying on leadership. There's a French and Ravens five forms of social power, uh, which you could read five forms of leadership. Yeah. They talk about reward power, punishment power expert power yeah informational power and then referent power which is for me reads sort of most like do you respect that person are they popular almost yeah i think it's really interesting those five forms of power when we have junior officers join the military or maybe in civilian industry you have people come you know like graduate entrance or whatever they're perhaps given a position right so they've got that positional power but they yeah. they if they're if they're worth their salt they know they don't know that much yeah. so they're not experts and I think that when you get in smaller teams, you have to kind of rely on the expert. And, you know, for my bleep would say to me, well, actually, boss, this frequency is, is not covered by this bit of kit. So that threat's open to you now. You, because of that, we've got to do this. Well, at that point, 
I've got the positional power. He's got the expert power. I'm, yeah. I'm going with what he's saying. And I think there's something in that. And that, you know, we, we kind of, you know, we wear our ranks on our chest in defense and it's perhaps more obvious than it might be in the, in a business environment, but actually that's allowed, that gives us a framework to say, well, this person's responsible for making this decision. Yeah. If they're worth their salt, they'll look at the, um, they'll look at the, the experts in the room or they'll look at the people. And I think the referent one's really interesting because reference referent power, I think is, I think it's the most useful, but it's potentially the most dangerous because if you have a culture where the referent leaders are the ones who have got, you know, overly laddish or, or, rogue and that and rogue is celebrated then all of a sudden things start to go rogue so yes. you've got you know you've got those 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 i think that that model i i i think about french and raven quite often in terms of in situations that i've been in and i've used it to mentor more my my own leaders in my team and i said well actually I, I think you're taking the position approach here but really actually you, you you might need to go for referent here or you might need to go for expert I think that's a really interesting model. It's not one I've come across, actually, and I will have to look that up uh, and, and learn a bit more about it. But it's, yeah, it definitely rings through to, to my experience of you know, the different types of teams. And I, I used to try and, when I was very, very junior, and, and like you say, you don't have the expert power at that point. You are you know, there because you've been put in that position. Um, and I used to think about it in the same way that, my signaler was there to do the signaler's job. My machine gunners were there to do the machine gunner's job. Um, and I was just another part of the team. It just so happened that my job was to cohere that team and bring them together to make sure that they were achieving the mission. And so it was rather less about being the boss and more about my role within the team is about cohering all of their individual skills and skill sets. Having said that, of course, relying heavily on my NCOs, my corporals and my troop sergeant, also to support me in doing that. Um, and, you know, in my first tour, my troop sergeant, vastly more experienced than I was in almost every aspect of what I was trying to do as much as in his own job and his own role. Um, and so we would have lots of conversations, but I would try and keep those where necessary you know, between me and him to try not to undermine my authority, but but absolutely to rely on his expert knowledge. You know, I worked with the same troop sergeant for about a year. Most of that was in pre-deployment training and then through the, the deployment to Afghanistan. And at the beginning, it was very much a, you tell me what you think the, the right thing to do here is. And very rarely would I ever overrule that. And then I will tell the troop what it is. And by the end of the that year, mm -hmm. it was very much a, a two-way conversation and I felt far more confident in making decisions on my own two feet with him sort of intervening yeah. rarely when, when it needed to, to happen because he you know, ha had experience that I didn't have. And that was a transitional process. Mm -hmm. In the Royal Marines, our initial troop command that year of my life is what we call our phase two training. So although we're operational, although I was doing the job, the institutionally the organization see this as a as a training process where you effectively are an officer but with stabilizers yeah and then by the end of it you've learned to ride the bike without those stabilizers now is a good opportunity to take a quick break and when we come back we can continue to explore going from managing a small team to thinking about developing and bringing others on see you after the break <laughs> 
Welcome back. So before the break, um, I was talking with Lieutenant Colonel Joe Brown from the Royal Logistics Corps about nuances of being uh, an ammunition technical officer in counter IED, so counter improvised explosive device, small team leadership. We were just starting to really get to Joe's other passion, which is managing people and developing people within teams. So I, I think, firstly, can you tell us a little bit about how somebody that joined the Royal Logistics Corps and became a, a bomb disposal expert specialises later in their career in sort of personnel management? Yeah, sure. So I think there's this, this kind of two strands to it. So for logistics officers, we're going to spend, you know, if we're lucky, we're going to be a troop commander. I did a second troop command tour as a as a um, when I was doing bomb disposal. Then we're going to do a senior captain's appointments so at adjutant or regimental ops officer, each one of these being about two years. If we're lucky, we're going to do a further two years at a later date commanding a squadron. That's like a between about 100 and 200 people. And then if you're really, really lucky, as, as I kind of just finished, you're going to spend an, a, another two years at a later date commanding a unit. That you, my unit was 720. But the, the gaps in between that, you're on the staff. Okay, so you're not working in it at regimental duty, you're working at headquarters, maybe you're writing policy, maybe you're supporting units that, that are beneath you. When you do those staff jobs, you're either going to be, you're going to be doing one of several career fields. And my career fields uh, uh, have been op support, which effectively is planning logistics for other people to do, uh, and personnel. So one of my elements of kind of developing others is, has, been, has been through that specialism within the staff. And was that by choice that you ended up going into the pose? A, a certain amount of choice. Yeah, I mean, so I became a unit adjutant, which runs discipline in a unit. Uh, it's got a kind of, Certainly informal, some would say it's formal position of mentoring over the junior officers in the unit. You don't really command any, but you, you know, you're kind of figure point for them. You are the most senior junior officer in the unit. Yeah, that's yeah. absolutely right. So and I, I did that. And then and then the, the first job I did as a, as a junior major after staff college was was in PERS. And because I did PERS then, I, I kind of continued to do it. In those roles where I've in, in PERS or when in those slightly more senior positions when I've been in regimental duty this idea of kind of mentorship and developing others it's only the decent thing to do I was invested in by my own seniors I remember when I was invested in and I remember the individuals and I've remained personally connected to those individuals when they've invested in me I kind of felt it was only right to sort of pay it forward so even on just a sort of basic human level, you want to make sure, you know, I was looked after, I want to make sure others are looked after. But I think there's another thing. And as a, as a commanding officer, uh, I was talking with my senior NCOs one day, I had a sort of did forums with them by, by rank to get how they were feeling about the, the unit and how we were operating. And for the senior NCOs, I said, well, so we, we don't really feel like we ever see our troop commanders. They're always away. They're doing stuff. They're skiing. They're always, you know, running ranges. They're not in. They're not behind their desk or on the hangar floor, helping the guys manage their vehicles. We really need to see more of them. And I'm perfectly respectful of that. I mean, yeah, having more visible leadership's great. But actually, what I said to them is, we could take the troop commanders. We could take them out of their job now. And you, the senior NCOs, you'd run the troops. Yeah, perfectly effectively. You'd be great. But the issue is, in six years' time, we'd have no OCs. Yeah. So the troop commanders are here. To, they've got to learn how to run their troop. And as you described, learning from your, your your troop sergeant, they've got to learn that in that year or so they've got. But it's only fleeting. And in that, but in that time, actually, what they've really got to do is learn how to how to run a squadron. Yeah. In 
you know, kind of six years, seven years hence, because we're not, we're not able to, we don't recruit people in. And that's, I think, a big difference in defence's challenges versus in industry. If, if you're in industry and you want somebody to lead a team yeah. that's got a specific skill set, you go and get it. And if you need to pay more to get it, then you will do it. Defence is not doing that. Defence is growing its leaders from the inside. So we, our structures has got, our, our formal structures and the stuff that good leaders do around the outside is about, if you know, if you're not making the next set of leaders, you, you're not leading yourself. Yeah. And that's a really interesting parallel with industry. But of course, it begs the question, like if you're outsourcing and you're going to get that skill set, that middle management, if you like, mm-hmm. to come in and be the expert, how did they get their experience? Yeah, absolutely. So it, it, Within any organisation, there has to be development somewhere, yeah. whether that's you know a formal agreed development process or not. And I'm I'm reminded about I'm fortunate in my career that I served in you know, army units. I served in an army unit with you um, at one point. I served in Royal Marine units, obviously. I served in an air force squadron, but I also served on navy ships, especially when I was doing the the piracy operations. And the Navy have a, a very different culture, a very different approach, because the job is very different. But it's really interesting that you're in the Army or the Marines, you're given that initial troop command, where, as you say, the, the, the senior NCOs, the sergeants, could probably, in most cases, do it absolutely with their with their eyes closed without the troop commander there. And in fact, it's probably slightly easier because you don't have that dynamic of, mm-hmm. well, they're the boss, but I'm the man or woman uh, with the experience. But it's really important in developing that junior leader, that junior officer, so that in five or six years when they come back as a squadron commander or a company commander, they've developed yeah. through experience by doing and learning on the job. And of course, you're always managing ever bigger groups of people and the mistakes you make early you know, the ramifications of that are, are mitigated. In the Navy, you don't really get that. So they, they have what they call divisional officers, but they're effectively administrative managers for a smaller group of people. But there's only one person who is the commander of that ship. And unless you're fortunate enough to be the commander of a, a, a quite a small ship and therefore do it at a junior rank, your first opportunity for command might be quite late on in your career, which would be the equivalent of you being the CEO of a unit, mm. of a regiment. And I've seen Navy officers who, you know, on paper, very, very capable, intellectually as capable as have a, as much intuition. They've got in as much experience in terms of time in service, but because they've never been in a position where they're allowed to make those mistakes, are making those mistakes in their command, yeah. being the CEO of the ship. And the ramifications of that are so much larger. And I do think there are a lot of really positive things about the Navy culture, but I do think it's one of the challenges that they have that in the Army and the Marines, we've mitigated out by by developing our people earlier uh, and in a more graduated way. Yeah, you could see how that might lead to more senior people being like, risk averse because they, they, they don't know necessarily how they're going to deal with failure themselves. Yeah. So, so the idea of failure, I think... I was talking to a group of um, majors uh, just yesterday, actually, at the Staff College about some reflection on leadership. And, and I, was, I was sort of saying that it, in every job I've had, I have I've fessed up to my boss at some point and said, hey, listen, I've messed up here. Every single job I've ever had, I've said, listen, this thing's not gone. This thing is, 
has not gone as well as I think it should have. Yeah. I mean, it's not going to go as well. And 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 I said to them, oh, I was fortunate that all of my bosses in turn were relatively enlightened and and did not they didn't hang me up hang me up to dry for it. Uh, and actually, I think it built trust because they knew then that that going forward, if I wasn't going to see themselves going wrong, then they they knew it as well. So I think there's a there's a thing in there that you, you as you go through your careers and you move from smaller teams to bigger teams, you get used to kind of this muscle memory of being open and honest with your with your boss. Interestingly, when I when I made this point, um, one of the one of the uh, people that were in the group said to me. So you call it fessing up. Do you do you fess down? Do you you know are you do you tell your teams when you've messed up? And I, I said to him, well, actually, I I kind of believe I I do actually. Um, I think there is a balance. You know, you don't necessarily want to bore them with all of your shortcomings. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, you yeah your really dirty do. laundry. <laughs> yeah, but there's I think there's a there's a it's an interesting balance. I do think that as business leaders and military leaders get used to leading, you know, Gen Z or whatever you want to call, you know, the younger members of the workforce they probably expect and accept a bit more authenticity yeah. uh, a bit accessibility maybe even fragility interesting if you consider that in the military context might not necessarily be hugely welcome but they probably accept they expect it and they probably accept it more than even when you know when when us 40 year olds joined defense it, it, it wasn't really a thing you know yeah certainly not and I think it aligns very much to some of the conversations Chris and I have had about empowerment and the idea of mission command, mm-hmm. strap tactic, um, and this idea of you know, telling people what they need to achieve, but not not how to do it, giving them the resources mm-hmm. to do it. But of course, to do that, and we talk a lot in industry at the moment about empowerment, mm-hmm. but it's not as simple as just delegating that decision down. You've got to bring those people with you, you've got to build the trust. Um, and as you were talking there about you know, fessing up or, or fessing down and exposing you know, shortcomings or, or failings or, or whatever, that honesty is what builds that trust, isn't it? That's what allows you to, to know that if somebody does something that is beyond their capability, they're going to come back and say, I didn't get that right. And that's collectively where we can learn lessons. There's there's another element to that, I think, though, which is being honest about where the other person isn't achieving what they're supposed to achieve. And, and, and I think that's, that's easy to do downward. It's easy to tell a subordinate that they're not meeting your expectations. Much, much harder to do upward. Yeah. Yeah, I think it is. I can't I can't think of a situation where I've in real time said to my boss, listen, I I don't think you're delivering. I think I've probably asked questions of them in a specific way. So uh, to to drive the behaviour in them that allowed me to do my job better. An example being that uh so that we worked together uh back in 2016, 2017, always used always talked to me about when he's when he was having an interaction with somebody, he, he used his ABC. He's like, what's the audience that I'm talking to? What behavior do I want them at the end to have at the end of this interaction? And then the C, it was slightly convoluted. It was what's the comms vector to get there? So who right. am I talking to? Yeah. What do I want them to do? And how do I achieve it? And I used that framework when I then worked for an, an, uh, another uh, another senior leader in defense who would say to me, listen, Joe, I need you to produce something for me, slide, paper, whatever. And I'd say, listen, oh, great what's the audience and what behavior do you want at the end of it yeah and and I, i've i've noticed now but more recently as he's 
tasked me to do those those types of things he's he's started to be a bit more specific about who they are before i've asked it now it's not necessarily i'm not saying it's because it's because of my feedback to him but i think it's quite a useful piece so that's an, perhaps an example where not not where he was deficient before but maybe through our time working together he he reacted and adjusted to to the questions that i posed to him yeah and, and from my perspective it made it more uh more efficient us working together because i could i felt like i could get closer to to what he wanted yeah. first time rather than taking i really like drafts. that so that's audience behavior comms vector. yeah and the comms vector you know if you're going to use outside the context i'm going to use if you can use the abc the comms vector might be well actually don't just assume that if you're asked to produce a powerpoint slide then actually the answer is a powerpoint slide it yeah. could be a video that you record on your phone or like a vlog and you and you send yeah. it to somebody on whatsapp it might be an email, it might be a phone call, but it's really it's about being deliberate in the way that you communicate your your ideas with different audiences. Yeah, I really like that. There was something you said as well about, you know, you couldn't think of a time where you've stood up and, and, and told a senior senior officer, you know, that what they're doing, they're not delivering, I think, with <laughs> the word you use. Um, and I'm I'm racking my brains. And apart from where I've been specifically asked to red team, mm-hmm. which is a very separate you know you're not assessing them as a leader you're assessing their plan Mm -hmm. um and you're expected to challenge um which i have done um i i can't think of an example of where i've effectively give given impromptu feedback to my boss Mm -hmm. um it's not a culture where that is done widely i have refused orders where i've thought the order was illegal um i'm not going to go into the, the details of that um but that straight away raises yeah. a really interesting <laughs> conversation um and in, i mean that's a common spectrum in its own, in its yeah, own yeah, yeah absolutely and in both cases i was on the other end of a radio and so you couldn't have the face-to-face but mm-hmm. the face-to-face happened later um and actually very pleasingly in both cases the the individuals concerned you know, listened to my point of view we sat down and discussed why i thought it was inappropriate what they'd asked me to do they explain why they'd asked it, why they thought it was appropriate. Um, in one case, we agreed to disagree, but take it no further. And in one, actually, they conceded that what they'd asked me to do was probably the wrong thing. Uh, and you, we both learned quite a lot. And then as an organisation, um, we learned because they had the humility to, to air that. Um, which goes back to what you were saying earlier about sort of fessing downward. Yeah. He, he not only let the rest of the organisation that he was commanding know mm. what had happened, why this dispute had, had taken place and what the sort of consequences were. But he also wrote it in the report going up to okay. higher headquarters. Um, and I, I was very pleased by that because it showed a level of humility, which which is absolutely what is required if we're, if we're going to collectively learn these lessons. And that would have built, that builds trust in the junior person to see that the senior person's responding to it. Yes. I think uh, I was thinking, you know, as you kind of summarised my view on that, not not calling out somebody for not delivering, that that whilst that's true, I don't really think I've, I've had senior leaders that have not delivered. I have offered them, you know, feedback, if you like. Yeah. And often I've found that I've done it when I've offered them a perspective, uh, you know, I'm a, I'm a middle-aged white male and I work, I usually work for middle-aged white males, right? Um, but if they're, if I've been in group settings with a senior person and there's been more diversity in the group, there's been a couple of instances over the last five years that I can think of where 
I've offered a view to, to my boss, whom I happen to be like the most homogenous with, if you like. I'm like closest to them in the group in kind of maybe cultural background or whatever, and say, listen, I understand what you're saying, but I actually think that some of them, some of the some of the other diversities in the group might not necessarily feel as empowered as you think you are empowering them with. Yeah. And actually, in and sort of variations on that theme, whenever I've done that, actually, I've found that's been, and I've just been blessed that they're enlightened enough to go, oh, right, okay, I'll take that. Yeah. You know, he may, he, Joe might be junior to me, but actually, I, I, yeah, Roger, got it. And, and I think they've subsequently modified some yeah. stuff. I, I think there is definitely a sort of external perspective on the military that it's very rigid, very hierarchical, Discipline is what holds it together. Um, and in fact, one of one of our listeners um, gave me some feedback and said that they got into a discussion with their other half um, where they, they'd had an argument about whether you know, military leadership verges on indoctrination. But John, John Creswell picked up on this uh, a couple of weeks back where, where he said, actually, there is this external shell that is very, very rigid and you know, very structured. But in, in internally, there's a lot of dynamism, mm. adaptability. And, and I think whilst you're entirely right, we are an organisation that is you know, particularly old, white and male, which comes with its own challenges. From my experience, certainly, there is there is a lot of willingness to, to take advice and learn. Um, and I think one of the things that I don't see so much in industry, and I do with some organisations, but, but collectively as a whole, there is far less time given to organisations self-reflecting and trying to create those communication bridges between subordinates and superiors so that you can have those honest conversations fessing up and downward mm. as well as providing that feedback up and downward. Um, I think that's probably a really good time to to stop uh, and we're going to have you back for the listeners next week where we can get into this in a little bit more detail um, about how you create those conditions so that you can develop, mentor uh, and create those cultures uh, for really effective, adaptable teams. Thank you for giving up your very valuable time, but thank you for your, your views because they're really, really valuable. It's been really interesting. Thanks for having me. Brilliant. If you liked what you've heard, please tell your friends. Please like and subscribe. It really helps with the algorithms. And we're trying to get this podcast to as wider audience as possible. We'd love to hear your feedback, your comments. Um, if there's things you've agreed with, disagreed with, we'd love to hear your stories. Please do send them to our Twitter handle, which is Battling with Biz. That's Biz with a Z. But for now, though, thanks very much. Goodbye. Goodbye.